0: Welcome to No More, Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the global head of strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites senior investment grade strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Credit Sites Sector podcast. My name is Zach Griffiths. I am the senior U.S. investment grade strategist. And joining me today will be Simon Adamson, our head of European financials strategy to look at the market in 2023, what his expectations are for the European banks and how he's thinking about the market this year relative to a challenging 2022. So, Simon, thank you for joining us today.
1: Yeah, pleasure to be here.
0: All right, let's jump right in. So, if you could have a sneak peek at any piece of economic, credit market, or sector-specific data for 2023, what would it be, and why? It's a case of
1: where do I begin on that? I think because there's a lot of information <laughs> I could deal with. I think the way we're looking at it at the moment this year, we're seeing credit risk is the key variable for us, and for banks, that probably means loan impairment charges. So. If you could shoot me across a sheet that shows all the loan impairment charges for the banks we're covering for for 2023, that would be pretty useful. But I guess that's cheating a bit. And what you really want me to look at is more top-down stuff. So I quite like that old definition of a bank, that it's a leveraged play on the underlying economy. So really, I guess what we would like, in order to see what's happening, not just with credit losses, but with revenues and costs as well, is some interesting macro data so what i would like i think for all the countries we cover in europe is all that macro data gdp rates unemployment that sort of thing i think that would give us a good view of the operating environment and then what to expect for the banks this year because that's really where a lot of the discussion is you know is what's going to happen to the economic environment in europe this year
0: yeah that's a great point and i just kind of add you know i think If you go back a few months, the concerns around the European economy, especially, were pretty dire or intense concerns. And I think the macro data, really on a global level, have held up pretty well so far and and caused a bit more optimism. How does that kind of jive with your macro view? And I know we've discussed this a bit, but I think that when you think about your sector recommendation for 2023, you could kind of go through that with with the macro backdrop and kind of why you are coming into 2023 position that way.
1: Yeah, sure. We sort of complicated it a bit, a bit for European banks because we actually divide our sector recommendations into four areas. So we have separate recommendations for senior debt, which is preferred senior and opco senior debt, for what we call sub-senior, which is non-preferred senior and whole co-senior. For tier two, which is dated subordinated, and then for additional tier one or 81. And we're actually market perform on all those subsectors at the moment, apart from 81s, where we moved to an outperform recommendation at the beginning of this year. And I guess what we're trying to do, which I, I suppose is what most analysts do, is try and merge those sort of views of fundamentals and technicals here. We actually thought that we ended 2022 with spreads relatively wide. For European banks, despite a fairly good rally in the last two or three months of the year. And it looks to us as though the market was still pricing in a fair bit of negative news, you know, and that's understandable, given, as you said, the sort of best mixed at worst very negative economic outlook. But I think that European banks are pretty well placed to manage that economic slowdown. Their balance sheet is in better than it has been for many years. And we also thought that the debt supply was going to be moderate. And we might come on to that later, I know. So we didn't think that would really have much of an impact on spreads. And then for eighty ones, where we have the outperform, a lot of that also was to do with extension risk. Now, as you might know, over the past 12, 18 months, pricing in the 81 market has been very much determined by extension risk, or at least the perception of extension risk. And the yields have swung from a yield to call to a yield to per basis. And that's really affected the prices there. Our view has been always pretty positive on that. We didn't think that many 81s would be extended. We thought extension risk was being overstated by the market. And that was one factor in our outperform recommendation as well. And in fact, that so far has worked out pretty well that some of the 81s that were thought to be at highest risk of not being called have been called. So that has helped prices overall in the market. And that was a big factor in what we wanted to do there. So not to take
0: too much time at least walking through every sector that you have a recommendation on, but what would you need to see to change your recommendation on AT1s in your outperform outlook? Are there specific economic catalysts that you have at the top of your list that you're watching or sector slash issuer specific things that are are atop the list relative to, obviously there's a, a broad set of fundamental and technical measures that you consider.
1: I guess for the AT1s, for us to move back from outperform down to market form or even underperform, I think we would have to be convinced that the, the rally that we've seen this year has sort of run its course and that maybe some of those fundamental concerns over the way the economies are moving in Europe, maybe some evidence that credit losses are starting to increase, could come back into play there. I think it'd be more a case that we thought that spread tightening has basically run out and that we don't think it's going to outperform from this position. I think for the other sectors, at the moment, I would say we're probably more biased towards moving up to outperform than moving down to underperform, but I think that would be driven mainly by macro factors, so you know, what we see in the economy, and as you know, over the past two, three months, we've seen economists revising their forecasts for the economy in Europe and and globally, so that's a moving feast there. I think in terms of becoming more negative, if we see credit losses rising more than we expect, if we see capital being eroded a bit, if we saw, for example, some uh, one-off losses at banks, that could you know, promote us to change our recommendations there. But I think in general, we have a relatively uh, positive view.
0: That's interesting. So from an AT1's perspective, that's gonna come more from changes in relative value outlook or the current relative value situation, whereas for the other sectors, it's gonna come more from an economic fundamentals. So that's that's interesting and I think important to point out to our clients. And so moving on, how do you think clients are positioned in your sector? Do you think your more positive outlook is shared? Is there a more balanced view in what do you think would make that change in 2023 based on your assessment of current positioning by clients
1: when we talk to investors i think there are a variety of views but i think generally i would say most investors are a little bit cautious simply because of that uncertainty over the macro outlook but I think generally share our view that the European banks are in a, a fairly strong position here, and I think also they see banks already benefiting from them, from higher interest rates in terms of their revenues, and that is a source of comfort. Certainly, as you know, we've had a huge amount of issuance in the first few weeks of the year, and we've seen what looked like very strong order books. You know, most of the issues have been well oversubscribed, so it looks to me as though There is a lot of money to put to work out there that people think that the banks are offering good value and that, you know, in the primary market in particular, there is good interest in banks. And I think that reflects a relatively sanguine view from from investors at the moment.
0: I think that's a perfect segue kind of commenting on just how much cash there is to put to work in the market so far this year. I think the spread tightening you've seen really across U.S. and Euro IG and high yield has been pretty astounding and really indicates just how much cash there is still to be put to work. And so the other side of that equation is what are we expecting for supply? I know you kind of highlighted this a little bit at the outset, but what are your expectations for new issue activity this year and what will drive new deals or keep issuers on the sidelines, do you think?
1: I think on the whole, we think that issuance will be down a little bit from last year. Just to put that in context, we tracked total issuance across all those categories I talked about earlier, senior and tier two and 81s in dollars, euros and sterling, we tracked around 324 billion euro equivalent last year. And that was a fair bit higher than we were forecasting. We were looking at a range of 240 to 270. So it ended up 324, so quite a bit higher than we thought it would be. And a big chunk of that was the sub-senior, which was 185 billion. And that compared to redemptions last year of 204. So there was a lot of net new issuance last year. It was a very active year, despite all the stuff that was going on. Now, in January and in the first few weeks of this year, we've seen, I think, well over 80 billion. So we've already got off to a very strong start, as you said. Our full year forecast range is 270 to 315. So we're saying it's going to be another pretty active year, but a bit less than we saw last year. There are various moving parts in that. Really, a lot of the issuance is driven by regulatory requirements, in particular, so-called MREL, which is the minimum requirement for own funds and eligible liabilities. And that's a sort of European equivalent of TLAC. And that is a big factor in the issuance of non-preferred and whole senior. But we think that most banks look pretty comfortable on their MREL requirements. So it's more a matter of refinancing what they have than incremental issuance for a lot of banks. We think Loan growth will probably be quite low this year because of the economic backdrop. Redemptions don't look out of the ordinary. The only factor I think that is a a little bit more difficult to put in is we're expecting payments and repayments, prepayments of of TLTRO facilities. Now, on the whole, we think that will be financed either out of bank's own liquidity or by issuing stuff like covered bonds rather than unsecured debt. But that could affect issuance to a little bit. I think probably January was very opportunistic. You know, there's, everyone knows the, the future is a little bit uncertain. We don't know exactly where rates are going. And I think banks were just locking in funding when could. So I think it will slow down over the rest of the year. But still, as I say, fairly active, I think. And the cost of funding is obviously higher as rates go up. But I think from a spread point of view, for bank treasurers, it still looks quite an attractive market.
0: Definitely. And it's interesting when you think about, I guess, our expectations for central bank activity in 2023, we're looking for the ECB to to do 50 basis points more in March and then another 25 after that and looking for just another 25 in the UK. And so when you think about the rates backdrop, and I'd say there's a little bit more tightening to be done, perhaps, but but not a ton. Obviously that's increased the cost of funding, but kinda of on balance are you thinking of the rates backdrop as a net positive or a net drag for operating performance for the banks in twenty twenty
1: three? I think it's still gonna be a net positive. I think that it does vary from country to country though. You know, as we've made in our earnings report so far, we've pointed out, for example, the French banks don't benefit to nearly the same extent as, say, UK banks or German banks from the rise in interest rates, simply because of the way the balance sheets are structured and the sort of government regulations that you have in those countries. So it's not going to be evenly spread. But on the whole, it's a net positive because it does give a big boost to net interest revenue at most banks. I think that will quite probably level off as we go through the year. And part of that will be this higher cost of funding starting to come through. At the same time as you have a pretty competitive lending market. So it's been a big net boost so far. And I think maybe that will tail off a little bit. The main question, really just going back to the first thing that we talked about here was the on credit losses. It's really the big unknown is whether those higher interest rates will actually have such a negative impact on the bank's customers, either household or corporate, that we actually see a rise in credit losses, which could to a certain extent offset that boost to revenues from the higher rates.
0: Definitely. And so I was going to go next to a question on what keeps you up at night. Clearly, credit losses and concerns around there are sort of the high level and very top of mind thing that you're focused on as as a potential risk to your more positive outlook. Are there any less obvious risks that you're considering or anything else on your radar outside of potential credit losses Mm -hmm. that you kind of put at the, the top of the list when you think about risks in 2023?
1: Well, I've been covering European banks for over 30 years now, so I think I'm not going to get complacent about things popping up. I do remember saying to someone in 2006 what a boring and predictable sector it was, so I think it's careful what you wish for. But you know, having been through you know everything from the Nordic crises in the early 90s to the global financial crisis what to, to we've seen recently, it probably takes a lot to keep me up, but I don't think there are any particular red flags at the moment. Clearly, as we were saying, credit risk is... Big thing to focus on this year, whether it's single names or systemic, whether it's commercial real estate or leverage finance. But there's not really anything that's causing any great alarm at the moment. What I would say is, I think it's interesting that what's happened to Credit Suisse over the past few months, you know, going back to October, November, I think it shows still how fragile banks can be. And it is still really a matter of client confidence in banks. And and you can see how easily banks can suffer withdrawals of deposits or of assets under management if people lose confidence in the banks. And Credit Suisse was a very liquid bank, well capitalized bank, but you know it came under a lot of pressure very suddenly in, in October and November. And I think that's just a reminder of how important liquidity is to banks and how quickly things can change. So I don't think we would ever be complacent about that. As you were saying, it's that fear of the unknown, really, that there is something there that we haven't been able to spot or that we're not aware of. So I'm thinking of things like a couple of years ago, the losses that some banks, particularly as it happens, Credit Suisse had on Orcagos, and it would have been very hard to have seen that from the outside. You know, money laundering scandals, you know, we saw Danske Bank, for example, suffering big fines as a result of what went on in its Estonian uh, business. And that, again, is very hard to see from the outside. So I think it's those sort of hidden issues that are probably the most worrying in a way that, you know, something that we can't really get much early warning of.
0: Definitely. And on that topic, you know, I wanted to ask about specific issuers. Credit Suisse is always at the top of the list over the past several months. Are there any others that are under pressure that you're keeping a close eye on as we go into 2023? Or is Credit Suisse really more of just an idiosyncratic name that's obviously been in the news plenty over the past three or four months?
1: Certainly, Credit Suisse is the big outlier, partly because of the size and the role that the bank plays. And it's it's reminiscent of what happened to Deutsche Bank a few years ago, but it is a big story, and it will be a long and painful restructuring. So you're going to get headlines on Credit Suisse for quite a while. Yeah, and it is trading very wide. In fact, I think, as we did with Deutsche Bank, we're looking maybe for an opportunity to go outperform on Credit Suisse because the spreads do look very wide. But I think at the moment, there are still so many questions and so many uncertainties about that restructuring program that we don't feel confident enough to do that so that's going to be an ongoing uh, story i guess the other bank that has constantly been in the news is monte Paschi, and the restructuring there has been as i say a very long-standing story and that will continue to be speculation including speculation over uh, acquisitions of of uh, monte Paschi. so i think we'll be writing quite a lot about that this year as well Otherwise, I think it's not so much a case of single name stories in European banks at the moment. It's more the environment. But of course, those banks that were heavily involved in Russia is still a story that's worth looking at. So we saw, for example, SOCGen sell its Russian exposure. But we still have two banks, RBI in Austria and Unicredit in Italy, that still have large subsidiaries in Russia. And I think for RBI in particular, that is going to be a defining element for this year as well. And And that means there is going to be continuing uncertainty over that story. So there's still going to be plenty for us to write about whatever happens on the macro side, I think.
0: Great. That's, that's perfect. And so as we move along here, I'd like to get your top pick, top pan and best carry trade to start the year and kind of what underpins those views.
1: Well. In a way, I think our best calls have already happened, unfortunately. I I mentioned earlier about extension risk on 81s, and for quite a long time now, we have been trying to predict which 81s would be called and which wouldn't be. So from quite a way back, we said we thought that UBS and HSBC had two 81s in the first quarter this year that looked high risk, but we thought they would be called. Uh, And we were saying that when they were trading sort of in the 80s, and certainly around ninety and they have now been called so in fact they have played out as we hoped and they were probably our two best trade ideas going into the year so we're going to have to come up with with something else now but generally as i said we like 81s our feeling is at the moment that this is probably in this sort of environment it's not the time to be taking unnecessary credit risk on a bank so we prefer looking at the what we regard as the stronger names and the bigger names And I think it makes more sense to go down the capital curve. So, you know, look at a sort of 81s or tier 2s on some of those stronger banks than it is looking at some of those weaker or more risky names, especially given the uncertainty over the operating environment. We mentioned Paschi a couple of minutes ago. There we have quite an interesting strategy. We have an outperform on its senior debt, but an underperform on its subordinated. And I think that reflects the whole way in which the restructuring is happening, the possibility that bondholders may or may not have to take losses there at some stage. So that's an interesting story where we can differentiate a bit on the type of debt that that it issues. More generally, we still like some of the UK banks. We think that they look quite cheap for various reasons. And I think people have been shying away a little bit because of the political and economic turmoil in the UK, but we still think Barclays not West Lloyds look attractive. And we like SOCGEN in France, that is that is a bank where certainly the equity market has a very negative view, but we're much more positive on the credit side, particularly now that it's out of Russia. And and BBVA as well in, in Spain, we think looks attractive. So those are the banks we like there. In terms of where we have underperformed recommendations... I guess, going with what I said earlier about not particularly liking some of those banks with weaker credit stories, the likes of RBI in Austria or BCP in Portugal, we are more negative on and we have underperformed there.
0: Great. And so in the near term, are there any key events or or dates that you're looking ahead to? And I guess I'd lump in with that, any comments on the 4Q earnings season and, and how either that's going or you expect it to go? And, and how that kind of incorporates into your near-term view on the market.
1: We've had quite a lot of 4Q earnings now. We haven't yet started with the UK banks there later this week. So far, actually, they've been pretty positive, very similar to what we saw earlier. In the year. not really much sign yet of stress in, in the loan books, positive trends in revenues, mainly because of rising rates. So in very general terms, with the obvious exception of something like Credit Suisse, I would say that the results have been, if anything, ahead of expectations. And I think it's more a case still of trying to work out what's going to happen later this year and if things are going to sort of mirror the downturn we're seeing in the, in the economy. So we're, we're starting the year in pretty good shape from that point of view. We do think, being realistic, that credit losses will rise this year. I think it's very hard in an economic downturn or in a recession for banks to be able to completely ignore that. So I think that we will see some strain on credit quality later this year. But as I say, I think putting it in context, banks are in pretty good shape to absorb that. So we're not expecting to see anything too severe from that point of view. In terms of key events, not really. I think it will be more a matter of keeping an eye on economic data as we go through the year. And in the case of particular banks such as Credit Suisse or RBI just waiting to see what happens in terms of either the restructuring or the status of the subsidiary in Russia, that sort of thing. We do have a stress test being published this year by the ECB and EBA in Europe and by the Bank of England. I'm not expecting anything to come out of there that is going to be out of the ordinary or from what we've seen before, but the stress tests do look quite severe. So That will be interesting maybe when we get the European ones in July, just to see whether there's any red flags thrown up there for, for European banks.
0: That's very helpful context on sort of what we've seen in earnings so far and can kind of look to going forward. So I'd like to finish up with a fun question. If you had any words of advice for management teams in 2023, what would you tell them?
1: If it was one word, it would be transparency. Disclosure is much better than it used to be for most European banks, although it is quite variable. I would say just generally better disclosure and more timely disclosure would be good, especially on stuff like asset quality and especially in this sort of environment. So, for example, you know, we are very interested in knowing what banks exposure is to commercial real estate sector for obvious reasons. There's a lot of speculation about what's happening to parts of the property sector in Europe. It's very difficult for most banks to get much granular information on that. And I think it would be it would be good if banks gave that sort of information before it was needed. So in the past, for example, when we've had problems in the oil and gas sector, eventually it has sort of poked banks into disclosing more information on what their exposure is but only tends to happen when there is real concern about that and the banks are under a lot of pressure to disclose what they have i think it would be great if we could get some better exposure on some of those uh, areas other than that i think from a credit investor point of view what we would like to see is a real focus on risk management and capital preservation rather than chasing volatile returns, basically on consistency of strategy. So I think that's the words of advice that I would have for the management teams.
0: Well, thank you, Simon. This has been incredibly helpful. Simon Adamson, our head of European financials research. I'm Zach Griffiths, our senior US investment grade strategist here at Credit Sites. Thank you to our clients for joining us and listening in, and we will be with you next time. Thank you sites disclaimer all price references correspond to the date of this recording this podcast should not be copied distributed or reproduced in whole or in part neither credit sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.